They have indication that crew stage separation has been confirmed by the spacecraft. In about one minute, Perseverance's landing software will wake up and begin the final preparations for entry. The first action it will do is to fire warm-up pulses with the entry thrusters. These pulses ensure that the spacecraft gets the thrust that it wants during entry interface. Hey there, Dave Robinson here, and you're listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science. And what you're overhearing right now is the flight crew at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, just minutes before the landing of the latest robotic mission to visit Mars. It's called Perseverance. We have confirmation that the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter is now relaying data from Perseverance. Yes. Yes. The navigation yes. has confirmed that the parachute has deployed and we are seeing significant deceleration. This landing was on February 18th, 2021. Yes. Perseverance has now slowed to subsonic speeds and the heat shield has been separated. This allows both the radar and the cameras to get their first look at the surface. Perseverance now has radar lock on the ground. Current velocity is about 100 meters per second. 6.6 kilometers of the surface. We have confirmation that the back shell has separated. We are currently performing the divert maneuver. Current velocity is about 75 meters per second and an altitude of about a kilometer off the surface of Mars. Touchdown confirmed. We've just heard the news yes. that Perseverance is alive on the surface of Mars. Congratulations to the mission. And looks like we have some more news in. It looks like we're getting the first image. Here, take a look at the first image. Whew. Well, now that that's over, I can tell you that Perseverance has recently begun a whole new chapter in its two-year mission. Here's an update on the Perseverance rover by guest contributor Mary Williams. And she'll also update you on crotchety old Insight, the Martian robot that's been on Mars for three and a half years now. Take it away, Mary. Hi, this is Mary Williams, and thanks to all who are listening. Today my report is on recent happenings concerning the Mars rover Perseverance. Perseverance began its mission when it landed on Mars in February 2021. NASA had chosen the Jezero Crater as a site for the rover's landing because they believed that this site was once an ancient river delta that was flooded with water and so was a possible location to find signs of microbial life. In the first year of its mission, Perseverance surveyed its surroundings even flying a mini-helicopter over the Jezero crater surface. Briani Horgan, an associate professor of planetary science at Purdue University, said, Our findings tell us that a river once flowed into this crater and then kept flowing to eventually form this delta out of the lake. And that was really exciting, for it tells us that there was, in fact, 
a sustained ancient habitual environment where microbial life could have lived. Since its landing, Perseverance has been slowly making its way to the ancient delta in the Jezero crater, and now it seems to have reached the bottom of one of the delta's key features, a place where sediment would have been deposited. This is a good spot to determine if ancient life once existed there. So begins a new phase of Perseverance mission, the mission to discover the possibility of life on the Red Planet. Over the next six months, it will be climbing the Martian Delta, taking small samples of soil and rock, with the plan of sending the samples back to Earth. This will be a long, drawn-out process that will require a series of other missions, consisting of another small rover grabbing the samples, putting them on a little rocket which will launch into orbit, rendezvous with another satellite, and then eventually return to Earth. This process could mean that the samples will not receive closer inspection until the year 2030 but it will be very interesting to know if life existed on Mars when water was present there, some three and a half to four billion years ago. Meanwhile, NASA's Mars lander InSight is dying, and NASA doesn't have any big plans to try to keep it alive. InSight landed on Mars in 2018 and has worked very hard to provide scientists with important data about seismic readings on the Red Planet. In total, it has recorded more than 13,000 Mars quakes. It also recorded the sounds of Martian winds for the first time. However, the various dust storms on Mars have been depositing dust on the lander's solar panels, and InSight's power supply is slowly diminishing. This little lander has provided much valuable information for scientists in its lifetime. Way to go, inside. So for now, all we can do is wait for Perseverance to do its work. And when we see the red planet shining in the night sky, we can still wonder, is there or has there ever been life on Mars? The answer may soon be known. That was Mary Williams. Thanks a lot, Mary, and keep us surprised. Now let's hear some more sounds from Mars. Compliments of NASA. First, Perseverance. We've put together a list of some of the sounds we've recorded on Mars to date, so let's take a listen. This is the sound of wind on Mars. This is the sound of the rover driving on Mars. This sound might be a little bit weird because it doesn't sound like a regular driving sound, but that's because the rover's wheels are made of metal. So this metal is rolling over rocks and sand and it makes this really clanky, squeaky sound. Next, we have the Supercam laser zapping rocks. We've taken a lot of pictures of rocks that have been zapped by the Supercam, the little marks in the rocks, and for the first time we can hear these laser shots. When it zaps a rock, it actually makes a sound. We can listen to that sound and learn something about the properties of the rock that we're analyzing. 
This is one of my absolute favorite sounds. This is the sound of a helicopter flying on Mars. We used this sound to actually understand the propagation of sound in general through the Martian atmosphere. Now let's hear more sounds from Mars made by the InSight lander. We first played these sound clips on our May 20th, 2019 episode of Bench Talk, but let's listen in again. There are three parts to the 40-second sound clip that NASA has provided the public. First, there is the sound of the Martian wind, then the actual Mars quake, and then there's the sound of a robotic arm on the InSight lander moving. Apparently, the lander was repositioning a camera when this quake happened. So, the sound is in there. Now, these sounds you're going to hear are not exactly what you would have heard if you had been on Mars at the time. The vibrations were so slight that we actually wouldn't have been able to hear much of anything in real time. This recording has been sped up by a factor of 60, so it actually occurred much more quietly and subtly than reflected in this recording. The first piece is a recording of what the wind on Mars sounds like from the InSight lander. Let's play that sound of the wind again. Now that was the sound of wind on Mars. This next sound clip is the actual Mars quake. How cool. Let's hear that Mars quake again. So that was the sound of the Mars quake. And then the final sound clip is the robotic arm that is moving the camera that's on the InSight lander. That was a robotic arm on the InSight lander. <laughs> Pretty cool. So this event indicates that quakes really do occur on Mars. It's exciting that we can all share in this recording from a planet that is millions of miles away and so different from us. To commemorate this wondrous event, Louisville poet Leslie Moise has honored us with a poem written specifically for this delightful astronomical event. Mars quakes, the low shudder of the planet's surface captured by NASA. Seismic activity subtle as breeze and earth trees. Discovery, the red planet moves not just through space, but within itself. Thrilling. Even if recordings by InSight required 60 times amplification for us to hear. I wonder where the quake occurred. 
in the Southern Highlands, Northern Plains. Personally, I hope it happened on the Tharsis Plateau. Tharsis. The exotic name captures my imagination, but that's just me lulled by the allure of language. Mars lacks Earth's abundance of tectonic plates. The brick-colored surface of our neighboring planet boasts a still fiery core, one that chimneys, quivers, and trembles, that vibrates the scarlet surface. The quake only registered 2.5 on the Richter, so gentle we wouldn't feel it, even if we stood right next to Insight, not even though it lasted 15 minutes. But oh, the tingle of listening to it from 33.9 million miles and 300 days away. Thank you, Leslie Moise, for that far-out poem. Change of subject. Let's shift from Mars science to Earth science. Brand new Bench Talk team member Rob Weber recently interviewed the winner of the 2022 Outstanding Science Teacher Award from the Central Section of the National Association of Geoscience Teachers. It's Yvonne Garrison at Mason County High School in Kentucky. Let's hear Rob's interview with Ms. Garrison. If you were a high school student, what would you think of a science class that gives you a chance to get outdoors, doesn't have any tests, and gives you opportunities to work with your classmates using your hands and your brains to solve real-world problems? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, apparently, the National Association of Geoscience Teachers agrees. I've just described a class of Yvonne Garrison, a science teacher at Mason County High School, and she has recently won the National Association of Geoscience Teachers Central Section's Outstanding Earth Science Teacher 2022 Award. We spoke with Yvonne Garrison about some of the projects she's had her students working on. So we looked at what a watershed was and where the water goes on our campus. I even took them to the wastewater treatment facilities so they could see what happens to, you know, our human wastewater. Um, and then what's just happening to rainwater and runoff on campus? Um, we looked at drains that are everywhere in parking lots that a lot of people don't notice because they're just ubiquitous. And we looked at water flow and where is the water ending up? And it's ending up in our creek down here. We did some water testing um, and found that the quality of that creek, the biological community, as well as the water chemistry is not awesome <laughs> there. And so I started asking questions, you know, why is that? You know, why isn't our creek pristine? What is adding to these problems that we are seeing? Where is the water from the parking lot going? And there's actually a pipe that directs it straight to the stream. It doesn't get to infiltrate at all. So we talked about that. And we developed some ideas for solutions. Uh, I did a different field trip. This was two years ago where we looked at green roof in Lexington, where they had implemented that to kind of manage their stormwater runoff from the roof. Um, they also had permeable concrete. So that allowed some water infiltration from that parking lot of that facility that was actually the closing group that we toured. And they also have a rain garden. So students got to see what that was and how that manages water flow and not only water quantity, but also helping with water quality. So we showed them a lot of, uh, we discussed best management practices for watershed uses, lots of things. 
And then students develop a plan of their own, how we might be able to improve the water management right here at the stream. And there were lots of proposals that the students gave. And I partnered with community members to judge those student projects. And in fact, the student project was introduced by someone at the Kentucky Division of Water. It's even more authentic and more real when I have somebody else, an expert in the field, come in and say, hey, here's the problem. Do you think you can fix it? We'll come back and judge your projects in five weeks or whatever. And so I had people from the Kentucky Division of Water, uh, Conservation District, professors at our local community college here, master gardeners of Mason County, lots of different people who have a stake in it and to come and judge their projects when we were finished. And the best projects got to actually implement their projects. So we gave them the money to introduce the project. And your next question is probably like, where did the money come from? I applied for a grant through TC Energy for um, like education and environmental improvement. And I asked for $7,000 and they gave it to me. (laughs) And so those students, I used some of that money for the field trips. And then the students used that pot of money, whichever projects were deemed best by those community members they got the money to implement it. And so we did implement those things. We planted like a hundred trees to improve the riparian zone of the stream down there. And then we also implemented a rain garden and I brought in other community members to help us with like, how do we design a rain garden? How deep do you make it? What are some adjustments that we need to make? What kinds of plants do we put in it? All of that. And that person was a person from SD1 in Northern Kentucky that came and um, helped us with that. Unfortunately, that was like right before the pandemic hit. So that class, like it was shut down and that class didn't get to put in the rain garden. But the next year I brought back those students and they led my next year's classes installing it. So we kind of had to work around that a little bit, but we do have a rain garden on campus. Garrison also told us about the way she favors assessing students based on projects and presentations rather than traditional tests. I have attended a lot of professional development, and especially since we switched from the Common Core standards to the NGSS standards, those standards are phenomena-based. But it's really about critical thinking, developing an argument or a solution to whatever problem, phenomena that you are presented with, and then how well can you back up your argument or how good is your solution um, is basically how it is. And that's how they're assessed now. So after attending a lot of those professional developments, I really started getting away from the traditional test-taking style and went very much into experiments, problem-solving, critical thinking, just phenomena-based learning. And that also was what I had dreamed of doing anyway. So when the NGSS standards came out, it really was the green light to go ahead and move forward with phenomena-based learning. And I, as I said in my synopsis, students don't remember content. They remember experiences. And if you've ever, you know, thought back to a job that you've completed or internships that you've held, you probably remember snapshots of doing something or being in the field. Uh, Like I remember doing some water sampling in the field. Um, Do I remember what I was testing for? Maybe it was atrazine. I mean, it's hard to remember, but I remember those experiences. And students are the same way. So when I think back to my, my internships with the EPA, 
my time at Orsenko, um, my fellowships and research that I did in college, like that's what I remember. And I know that that's what students are going to remember as well as the experiences. Um, so that's really what inspired me is just my life experience, knowing that I wanted to give them those phenomena based and experiment based and problem solving experiences. Uh, most of the students enjoy not having a test and it, the assessment is your project proposal. That's how we know what you've learned. And I feel like that's an authentic assessment because rarely in a job will you have to take a test. Like maybe for some training uh, on the job, you might have a, a few um, checkpoints, kind of like when you get your driver's license, like a certification type thing. But rarely are you going to have tests after test after test in a, in a job. It's going to be projects. It's going to be collaboration. How well did you work with your team and your group members to get the job done? Did you meet your deadline? And was your project successful? Uh, that is all very authentic. And I think that students appreciate that because you get that question a lot. When are we going to use this? You know, and the answer for taking tests is almost never. So like this year, I didn't give a single test in biology. It was, it was all project-based assessments. So it could be a presentation. It could be presenting your model to the class uh, of whatever concept we were covering. But I think that they really appreciate, well, I've, I've heard a lot of students say, I'm glad that we don't have tests in here. <laughs> and they appreciate the authentic assessment. That was our talk with Yvonne Garrison. Mason County High School science teacher and winner of the 2022 Outstanding Earth Science Teacher Award given by the National Association of Geoscience Teachers Central Section. Reporting for the Kentucky Academy of Science, this is Rob Weber. That was Rob Weber interviewing Yvonne Garrison, the award-winning geoscience teacher at Mason County High School in Maysville, Kentucky. Thanks, Rob, and congratulations, Yvonne. And speaking of Maysville, now let's hear from Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College. He's going to fill us in on what planets, stars, constellations, and meteor showers await us in the month of July. Take it away, Scott. Summer observing in the night sky has one real drawback. It is quite late before it gets dark. In early July, we are still close to the first day of summer back in June, corresponding to the longest amount of daylight. The northern hemisphere is tipped more in the direction of the sun in the daytime at this time of the year. Nice for warming up the weather, but definitely cuts down on the number of dark hours. So, waiting until evening twilight comes around, I begin my journey outdoors. Usually, when I start my tour of the twilight sky, it is because I am looking for planets. Often, some of the brighter ones show up before it gets dark. I start in the western sky, then scan around to the southern sky and over to the east. No planets to be found this month in the evening sky, as they're all hanging above the eastern horizon before sunrise. As there are no other obvious planets to hunt for, and darkness has by this time fallen, it is possible to see what constellations might be visible. Summer skies do have some easy to spot. If I turn to look to the south, a long S-shaped pattern of stars can be seen above the southern horizon. This is Scorpius the Scorpion. 
The reddish-colored star almost due south in our early evening skies is Antares. It marks the heart of the scorpion. Just beyond are three stars, one above the other, marking the face and beginning of the pincer-like claws. These are made up of some of the dimmer stars on either side and beyond the face. Finally, south of Antares is a long curve of stars, ending with two nearly side by side. This would be the body and long whip-like tail of the scorpion, including a stinger represented by those last two stars. Just beyond the tail of the scorpion is the constellation called Sagittarius the Archer. Now, imagining this group as an archer can be a bit of a challenge, but the brighter stars of that constellation form a pattern somewhat like a teapot. Four of the stars form a flattened rhombus. Think of a rectangle that is shorter along one edge and longer along the opposite edge, which marks the handle of the teapot. To the right of that are three stars forming a small right triangle of sorts, which becomes the spout. The bowl of the teapot is thus the area between these two. And above the bowl is a single star that helps form a lid on the teapot. If your skies are dark enough, rising out of the spout, you may see a hazy patch. That would be steam rising out of the spout, but also marks part of the Milky Way, which can be seen stretching across the eastern sky toward the W-shaped pattern of stars called Cassiopeia above the northeastern horizon. The part of the Milky Way near the spout of the teapot is the direction of the center of our galaxy. Some 26,000 light years away from us in that direction is a monster, a supermassive black hole with a mass of about 2.6 million times the mass of the Sun, located in the center of our galaxy. Fortunately, at 26,000 light years, its gravitational pull is so weak as to not be a bother to us. We just keep orbiting around it along with the other stars that make up our galaxy, just like the planets orbit the Sun. As the Milky Way stretches from Sagittarius over toward Cassiopeia, it passes through three stars marking a near isosceles triangle. This is the Summer Triangle, made of three bright stars from three different constellations. Closest to the top of the sky is Vega, in the constellation Lyra, the Harp. East of it is Deneb, in Cygnus, the Swan, and the southernmost of the three is Altair, in Aquila, the Eagle. A good star map will show off each constellation, and I will say more about them in future episodes. The end of the month features a meteor shower, the Delta Aquarius meteor shower. The Delta Aquarius is an average shower that can produce up to 20 meteors per hour at its peak. The shower runs annually from July 12th to August 23rd. Its peak this year on the night of July 28th and morning of July 29th. This is a great year for this shower because the new moon means dark skies for what should be an excellent shower. Best viewing will be from a dark location after midnight. Meteors will radiate from the constellation Aquarius, but can appear anywhere in the sky. Complementing the dimmer Delta Aquarius are the Perseid meteors. This is one of the better known meteor showers and reaches a peak overnight August 11th and 12th, though it is active from around July 14th through August 24th. The downer for the Perseids this year is that the peak occurs near the full moon in August, but I will provide more information on this shower in the August Skies broadcast. For now, from about mid-July on, two different meteor showers will be contributing shooting stars to the night sky. As to planets, if one is staying up later in the evening to catch shooting stars, one might eventually catch a glimpse of a planet or two. 
By mid-month, Saturn will be rising above the eastern horizon around 11 p.m. Interestingly, its location in the sky is roughly the radiant point of the Aquarian meteor shower. The waning gibbous moon will rise shortly thereafter and may begin to erase viewing of the Aquarians as it continues to rise, as they are dimmer in appearance than the brighter Perseids, which will also be coming more out of the northeast. As a further tease, about an hour to an hour and a half after Saturn clears the horizon, Jupiter will be rising more directly to the east. The much dimmer Mars does so around 2 in the morning, a bit left of due east. So, for the really dedicated, a few planets could be added to the shooting stars and constellations visible in the skies of July. But, if you are not into such late night viewing, give each of these planets a month or so and they will be better placed roughly an hour earlier in the evening sky. Happy observing. That was Professor Scott Miller. Thanks a lot, Scott. And there you go. From Mars to the stars, from pedology to pedagogy, it's Bench Talk, the weekend science. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.